It's hard to overstate the importance of good leadership. Everything rises and falls on leadership. Under good leadership, people thrive. There's flourishing. There's, there's success. There's all kinds of blessing. Under bad leadership, it's the opposite. There's suffering. Leadership is crucial. Name a season of your life, and, and, and every season, you kind of look into someone to show you the way. Someone that's gone before you, someone that can guide you, someone that can lead you. Like we, we want leadership. We, we need leadership. I don't know how to figure this out on my own. I want, to, I want somebody ahead of me I can look to. I want somebody to guide me. I want, I want somebody I can seek advice from. Leadership is crucial. In the words of Lieutenant Colonel Nathan Jessup, you want me on that wall and you need me on that wall. Let's hope we can handle the truth. So, Leadership throughout the world, throughout our lives, in every way, it's crucial. You, you get a battle going on, and the success of that battle is so much, so often determined by the leadership and the decisions made or the defeat. You, you have a family, a good leader, the family thrives. Weak or bad leadership, the family can suffer. I mean, any context, any group of people, any, any situation, whether it's work or whether it's uh, a, a, a big thing like a war or a battle or just in the context of your family, like you, we need good leadership. It's so, so crucial. And it's in all phases of life, all walks of life, but it's obviously in the Bible. You see that picture painted over and over and over again. You have this period of history of God's people where a good king would come into power. He would take the throne and he would lead the people to worship the Lord. And he would lead the people to uh, make the sacrifices and do the things and obey the word of the Lord and obey his commands and all those things. And what would happen? The people would flourish under that leadership. There would be blessing for the people under that leadership. And then the next king would come and he oftentimes would be a bad king and he would lead the people away from God and he would lead the people to worship idols and false gods and he would lead the people to abandon their worship and their pursuit of the one true and living God and, and, and God would discipline his people and there would be suffering of the people under the bad leadership. You see it all throughout the Bible. If you want to really like jazz your quiet time up, spend some time in the book of Judges. That whole book is pretty crazy. There's some crazy stories throughout the book of Judges. But the pattern of Judges is just over and over just hitting on repeat like Groundhog Day. It's just one pattern after another of the people worshiping God and then forgetting God and then abandoning the worship of God. Looking to the nations and going, their gods look cool, their gods look like they're doing stuff, so we'll worship the gods of the nations. And God would discipline his people. And most often he would do that by raising up somebody else to conquer them, to oppress them, to afflict them. And in the midst of that, they would go, what have we done? And they would cry out for help. And every single time what God would do is he would raise up up a leader. And he'd bring a judge, a leader to lead the people. And that leader was designed sometimes to be a military leader, but ultimately it was to lead the hearts of the people back to the worship of God, lead the hearts of the people to worship the one true and living God and abandon the idol worship. And then God would restore his presence with his people and his blessing with his people. So leadership was crucial. In our Bibles, it's crucial. And obviously, guys, in the context of the church, leadership is crucial. Barry Webb, in his commentary on Zechariah, said it this way, In short, strong leaders raised up and empowered by God are essential for the welfare of God's people. Only through such leadership can his flock be properly cared for. In the context of the church, strong leaders 
pointing you to the gospel, pointing you to God's word, leading you through the gospel lens, like that's crucial for the welfare of God's people. And just in case you're new here or you haven't really figured this out, let me just try to help you understand what that looks like and how that plays out at Crosspoint Community Church. We do this in what we call a plurality of leadership. So we have a group of elders that are responsible for leading the church. It's not one person leading the charge here. It's not one guy that's making all the decisions. We lead in the context of plurality. We have different passions and different gifts. In case you haven't noticed, the four of us elders are pretty different. We have different personalities. We have all kind of different views, but we come together and we lead together in this thing called plurality. But it's not even that. We also have a staff, and they're responsible for leading different aspects of ministry. They're responsible for all these different kinds of things and leading our children's ministry, leading our youth ministry, all these different areas of responsibility that our staff embrace and they're leading in that way. And then we have deacons that lead alongside our elders and serve and facilitate ministry. And then we have community group leaders. We have, we have all kinds of leaders. We have a plurality of leadership, but maybe better to say we have a plethora of leadership. It's just a good word, right? I think we may need to add it into that membership curriculum. Like, it's a plethora that we have of leadership. In fact, if you're a member here, you're expected to be a leader. You're expected to influence. You're expected to have influence and lead in, in a positive way somebody around you because leadership is crucial. And in Zechariah chapter 10 and 11, this is a part of, a, of an oracle, a, a prophetic speech that Zechariah is saying to the people is God speaking through Zechariah. And it started in chapter 9. In chapter 9, the whole focus was there's a king coming. And in chapter 10 and 11, there's a different theme that develops because that king is going to be the leader that the people really, really need. And so the theme in chapter 10 and 11 is leadership. And so we're going to talk about leadership today. And if you remember from last week, this is a prophetic speak, speak, speech. This is apocalyptic writing. And one of the characteristics of that kind of writing, that style of writing, this prophecy, is that the timeline doesn't matter. Because the, the prophet will jump back and forth in the timeline. He's, he's, the, he's, what he's doing, he's developing a theme. And the theme is people suffer under bad leadership, and so you need a good leader. And so he's going to talk about bad leadership. And you'll see traces of bad leadership that led them into exile in the first place before they ever came back, way before Zechariah's time. You'll see... Uh, future tense, bad leadership that's coming that God's going to have to deal with and get rid of. And that's important to know that that timeline is just kind of all over the place. He's talking about just bad leadership in general, and he uses specific examples, but it's, it's important because you know that right now, Zechariah is a good leader. He's listening to God, and he's speaking for the people. You have Joshua, the high priest. He's a good leader. You have Zerubbabel that's helped kind of rebuild the temple like he's been a good leader. Right after them is going to come a guy named Ezra and another guy named Nehemiah. They're going to be really good leaders. They're going to lead the people to build the build the walls. And you have this, ser- this season right now of good leadership, but we also know that bad leadership is right around the corner. It's 500 years later, Jesus showed up and he was so angry with the Pharisees and the way they were leading the people. I mean, his most, most of his criticism is towards those religious elite, the religious leaders who were tying down people, loading up their backs, giving them burdens they couldn't carry. And he called them brutal vipers. He called them hypocrites. He came at them hard because this bad leadership crept in after these guys that are leading today. And so God is talking about this idea of leadership. And, and really what he starts with is he talks about the consequences of bad leadership. When bad leadership exists for God's people, consequences are played out in the people. 
God's going to deal with the, with the leaders. In fact, that's what he's saying here is, I'm going to judge these leaders. I'm going to remove them. Open up the, the doors because the fire is coming. He's going to judge them. But the consequences of bad leadership are most often felt in the people that are under their care, whether it was a king, whether it's a judge, or whether it's whoever. When, when you have bad leadership, the consequences play out. And so what he talks about here is this idea of bad leadership bringing horrible consequences to the people. And I want us to walk through that. I want us to see that. Consequences of bad leadership. First, people don't worship God. So if you've got your Bibles open to Zechariah, look at verse 1 of chapter 10. And what does he say? He says, ask rain from the Lord. In the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone the vegetation in the field. Which seems kind of random if you just jumped into chapter 10. But we were in chapter 9 last week, and chapter 9 ended in verse 17. For how great is God's goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. So he's saying, I'm I'm bringing a harvest to the people. Well, the harvest only comes if there's adequate rain. And so in chapter 10, he says, so you need to ask the Lord for the rain. Why? Because under bad leadership, the people don't look to the Lord. They don't worship God. Look at verse 2. For the household gods utter nonsense. And throughout Israel's history, their main problem seemed to be they would stop worshiping God and they would start, start worshiping false gods. They would look to the other nations and go, well, their God does this. And they say their God does this. And there's, their God's the one who gives rain, so let's pray to them. They would even bring these idols, these little idols, and bring them into their house and set up little altars and they would pray to the God of rain and pray to these false gods. And what the, the rebuke here is that these leaders are leading you to pray to the wrong thing. They're leading you to worship the wrong thing. They're leading you to idolatry. Mm-hmm. Under bad leadership, that's, that's so often the case that people don't worship God. And when we talk about idolatry in our culture, in our context, it's valuing and treasuring and pursuing something that's not God and acting like it's God. Looking to something that's not God for the ultimate satisfaction, purpose, and meaning in our life. That's idolatry. And bad leadership can lead us to believe that all these other things will bring us the things that only God can bring us, and we will, we will walk away from him. Sometimes that bad leadership is someone who's in authority. Sometimes that bad, bad leadership is just a friend. It's just a friend who's telling you stuff that's not true, telling you don't listen to this, don't listen to that. Teenagers, don't listen to your parents, your friend says, because they don't know what they're talking about. They were never kids before. And bad leadership can be that. Sometimes the bad leadership is in our own head. We tell ourselves the lies. We convince ourselves that things are not true. And bad leaders, bad leadership, here's the consequence that plays out. People begin to not worship God. They begin to value treasure, pursue things that are not God. It's idolatry. But it's not just that. People also don't listen to God. The consequence of bad leadership is they don't listen. Uh, Back to verse 2. The household gods utter nonsense and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and they give empty consolation. So divination was something that people would practice from time to time. It was forbidden in in the law. They were not supposed to do that because they were supposed to look to God for wisdom. They were supposed to look to God for knowledge. And then people would come and say, oh, we can see the future and we can do this and we can read signs and we can read the stars. And they would give into that and they would start practicing sorcery and all these different kinds of things. And he's saying, hey, you're, you're doing that. They can't tell you the truth. They can't tell you what's up. Under bad leadership, people are led astray and they begin to look to things for wisdom and knowledge and discernment and the right way to live that are not from God, not from his word. And the results of this, this kind of 
bad leadership playing out and the consequences are devastating because in the end, people are exploited and they're oppressed because bad leaders are only in it for themselves. Bad leaders are just doing it for their own reputation, what they can gain out of this. If I get enough followers, I can do this. And then ultimately, the people are scattered and lost. Back in verse 2, the household gods utter nonsense. The diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. And here's the result. Therefore, the people wander like sheep, and they are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. Under bad leadership, when we wander away from God, we abandon his word, we abandon the truth, and we start, start looking for wisdom and insight from other sources that are not based in the truth, based in the gospel, and based in God's word. We end up lost. We end up scattered. We end up oppressed. We end up harassed. What did Jesus do when he showed up? He looked at the crowds and he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, without a good leader. Leadership is crucial and the consequences of it are significant. It's dire. And so God is going to offer a solution to that. This whole oracle is God's solution to our problems. The king is coming. And in chapter 10, what God is saying is that he's going to send a shepherd king to lead us. I mean, you you kind of expect, okay, you got bad leaders, let's get rid of the bad leaders. God's going to do that. And you kind of expect, and then he'll raise up some good leaders to take their place. And he does that in some ways. But this is a big picture view in Zechariah. It's not just out with the bad leaders, in with some good new, new good leaders. It is there's one leader coming, and you need to look to him. He's going to be the king, and he's going to be the shepherd king. The greatest leader of all time is coming. Now, it's kind of interesting how this plays out because we're really focusing on chapter 10. Miranda just read chapter 10 because I was being nice and shrinking the passage down. But we're also looking at chapter 11. In chapter 11, God does something with Zechariah that I find really interesting because what he does is says, Zechariah, I don't think the people are listening, so I need you to go, like, play a role. And you're going to act out something. You're going to act out a parable for the people. And he tells Zechariah, Zechariah, I want the people are... These sheep that, are, that, that have been listening to the bad leaders, they're doomed for slaughter, and I want you to be a good shepherd and go play the role of a good shepherd leading sheep that are going to the slaughter. And so Zachariah is going to go, and he's going to take two shepherd staffs. One he's going to name Favor, and one he's going to name Union. And favor is the blessing of God on his people, the grace and blessing, his favor on his people. And Union is the unity that he brings with us, with other people. And so Zechariah is going to play this role. He's going to act out this parable. He's going to go as a shepherd before the people who's going to lead the people with favor and union, which those two things come together, and basically it's the blessing of God on your life. He's going to be the good shepherd that leads with blessing and gives blessing to his people. And this is not, not unusual in the Bible, you see God do this with his prophets every now and then. They would speak for God. That was the main thing that they did. But every now and then they were told, I've got to act this thing out. So Hosea, you've heard of Hosea? He's a prophet of God. And God says, hey, Hosea, here's what I want you to do. You're going to demonstrate to your people how much I love them. And I want you to go marry an unfaithful woman. Most people believe that he was told to go marry a prostitute. And she's going to leave you. She's going to cheat on you. She's going to run back to other lovers and other men. And when she does, she's going to end up in trouble and she's going to end up on a slave trading block. And here's what I want you to do, Hosea. I want you to go buy her back. 
And Hosea goes and buys her back, redeems her, brings her back as his own wife, as a picture, as a real life, acted out prophetic picture of how we have been unfaithful to God and we have abandoned him and we've walked away from him and God goes to pursue us, to redeem us, and to bring us back. So God does this every now and then. One time he told Isaiah, Isaiah, I need you to prophesy against Egypt because everybody thinks Egypt's awesome and they're powerful and they look to them for all this power and Egypt is going to be ashamed in my presence. I'm going to shame Egypt. And so he says, Isaiah, here's what I want you to do. Go preach about Egypt, but I want you to take your clothes off and do it naked. Take your sandals off, barefoot and naked, go preach this. And then Isaiah ended up doing that for three years, preaching naked, prophesying against Egypt. They're going to be just as shamed as I'm going to be. So God does this every now and then. Seems like Zachariah got off easy, really, if you compare it to those two stories. It's also why you'll never hear me say that I'm a prophet. (laughs) Nope, I'm just a preacher. Zachariah, go play the part of the shepherd. The sheep are going to the slaughter. But I want you to go play the part of a shepherd. And when he does in chapter 11, something really interesting happens because we find out that even though he's the good shepherd and he's representing the good shepherd that's coming, Jesus, the great shepherd king, he's representing that. And the people who've been suffering under bad leadership, they reject him. They despise him. That's the word that's used in chapter 11. They despise me as their shepherd. And he realized they don't want to listen. They don't want to know what I have to say. They don't want to be led this way. They don't want to be led by a good shepherd. And so Zechariah ends up looking at them, realizing that they're not listening. They're going straight to the slaughter, and he can't stop it. And so he rebukes them. He breaks those two staffs. He breaks the staff of favor, representing the fact that God is breaking his covenant with his people. They've separated themselves. They've turned their backs on God, and there's a separation between them and God. And then he breaks the staff called union. Because when our relationship with God is disconnected, it always shows up in our relationship with others. Every relationship you have this way, horizontally, will always be affected by your relationship with God vertically. Every time. It doesn't matter what relationship that is. Your marriage relationship, if things are off between you and God, things are not going to be good right here. Your family, things are off things will not be good. Like that's just the way this plays out. So symbolically, Zachariah is breaking the favor staff. God's broken his covenant with his people because of their disobedience and their sin. And the result of that is he's also going to, this unity is going to reign here. Those relationships are going to be in trouble. And so Zechariah does that. And this, this gets really, really crazy, really, really cool here because in the midst of this conversation, Zechariah is like, hey, and I've been your shepherd for a while, so why don't you go ahead and pay me for, for those wages? Why don't you you decide what you should pay me and pay me a fee and then I'll be on my way. I'm, I'm next train out of here, I'm gone because you don't want me as your shepherd anymore. Breaks the staff, go ahead and pay me. And they get together and they offer him 30 pieces of silver. You heard about this before? 30 pieces of silver. It was the, it was the wage that you would pay someone if they lost a slave. If your if slave died in an accident, somebody would pay you 30 pieces of silver. So they look at the good shepherd and all that he was offering them, favor and union, and they're like, oh, yeah, we don't need you anymore. Here's 30 pieces of silver for your time and your trouble. That's really, really interesting there. But it's even more interesting 500 years later when Judas betrays Jesus. And when he agreed to betray him, they, they agreed on a price, and they gave him 30 pieces of silver. 500 years later. 
And he took the 30 pieces of silver, he betrayed him with a kiss, and then he had horrible regret about that, and he realized, I shouldn't have done that. So he comes back and he decides, I need to give this back. He's trying to make something right here. I need to give it back. They're they're not going to take it, right? Now, when Zachariah was given the 30 pieces of silver, he didn't take it either. And he said, I'm going to give it, God told him to give it to the potter. The potter who's in the temple making stuff for the temple, give it to him. Throw it in the temple, give it to the potter. And when Judas comes back and gives the money back, he's given the 30 pieces of silver. They say, we don't take it. And they took it and they bought a field from the potter. 500 years later. Guys, you can't make this stuff up. (laughs) This is God in control of all of this. Showing you a picture of Jesus 500 years before that's really, really clear. Here's what you need to hear, by, hear and learn by this, is that good, when you have bad leadership, the people suffer, but it's not just the leader's fault. It never is. Because what we do, we tend to do, is we tend to listen to bad leadership. We tend to seek out people that will tell us what we want to hear rather than what we need to hear. But that's, that's what we do. And here's the people basically saying, oh, yeah, we're going in this way, and here's the good shepherd who wants to bring us back and gather us back and do all these things. And they're like, no, we despise him. We reject him. They didn't want to hear that. And as people, we seek out the wrong types of leadership all the time. We believe the lies all the time. This is just how we're wired. This is what we do. And then we refuse so often. We all refuse to listen to the good leaders. And if you're looking at me like, I don't think that's true, then you have never planted a church. (laughs) And I say that today to the crowd that came during spring break, so this is not for y'all at all. It's all the other people, right? Like, I do it too. I don't, man, there's something in me that's like, I think that's probably right and best, but I don't want to do it, and so I want to run the other way all the time. We don't want to listen to this leadership. And so we get the leaders that we want. We get the leaders that we deserve. And we can't blame just the leaders on it because we're choosing who we listen to. We're choosing who we follow. I mean, so many times we choose wrong. And when we're offered the other way, we don't, we don't go that way. We don't turn around. We don't, we don't come back. And what Zachariah is doing is saying, hey, you, you don't want me as your leader? Fine. Break the covenant. You, you can be on your own. You're going to slaughter, by the way, but you can be on your own. And God still does the same thing with us. I want you to see this in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 24 and 25, this will be on the screen, says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The people were worshiping the created thing, the idols, instead of God. They were valuing and treasuring something other than God. And God gave them up to that. God turns them over to that. And what you need to see in that, seems kind of harsh on the surface, but what you need to see is a loving father letting his children run. Letting them go down that path where they think that they will find happiness and joy and fulfillment because God as our loving Father disciplines us this way by turning us over to our desires because he knows it will never satisfy us. 
He knows that those paths that we're running down are dead-end paths. And so his hope and his goal is for us to run down that path, and he'll let us go and get to the dead end and realize this did not give me what I thought it was going to give me. This lied to me. This over-promised and under-delivered. I'm not finding what I was really looking for. And we'll turn, repent, turn back, just like the prodigal son. We'll come to our senses and the pigsty and go, even the servants in my father's house have it better than me. I'm going back to my father's house. And God lets us run. You guys have that story. We run because we think, this is what I really need. If I get this, I'll really have it. If I could just have whatever it is, a relationship, a status, a job, a, a bank account number, like whatever it is, if I have this, I'll really, really be fulfilled. And we all have these stories of running down those paths and chasing those paths, and it doesn't fulfill us. And we could take this microphone, and we could put it right here, and I'd just sit down and go, okay, come on up, tell us your story. And almost everybody has a story. Yeah, I ran down that path thinking it was, it was far from God, and I ran down, and I thought, this is what I really need. And I was so on the wrong path, and I got to the end, I realized this is not it, and I came back. You have that story. For most of you, it's called college. You're just running, 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 thinking this is going to be great. And now you look back and you're like, man, I was wasting so much time. And God lets us go. Breaks us out. You want to be on your own? Try this on your own. Because he wants us to come back. He wants us to understand. He wants us to see that will never fulfill us. And so this bad leadership has consequences for the people, but so often the people are choosing to follow the wrong leaders. So God's solution is a shepherd king. God's solution is the greatest leader of all time. God's solution is the ultimate leader. Rejoice, O Israel. Shout for joy, because your king is coming. He's righteous. He has salvation, and he's humble, and he's riding on a donkey. Behold, he's coming, and he's coming to rule as a shepherd. He's coming to rule as a servant. He's coming to put you and me, our needs first, to sacrifice, to lay down his life for us. And so behold him. Jesus is the good shepherd, and he's the ultimate solution to all this mess that we make of our lives. And in verses 6 through 12, this passage just kind of unpacks this this blessed life, this beautiful life, this abundant life that comes to us when we Submit to the good shepherd when we follow him, when we stop listening to the lies and we turn and we follow Jesus. We put our faith in him. We put our trust in him. We say, that's where I want to go. Look at the blessings that come. Jesus is the good shepherd. His sheep will be strengthened. Verse 6 of chapter 10, I will strengthen the house of Judah. There's no security. There's no stability here. They need so much help here, and I'm going to strengthen them. Jesus' people, his sheep, are strengthened by God. By the good shepherd. It continues, it says, and I will save the house of Joseph in verse 6. So so Jesus is the good shepherd and his sheep will be strengthened and they will be saved. And I don't want you to miss this because this isn't just Jesus coming to show us a little bit of a better path. Jesus isn't coming just because we got a little bit off and we need a little correction. We just need an example to follow. No, Jesus is coming because when sheep wander off, they end up in pits. When When sheep wander off, they end up devoured by predators. When sheep wander off, they are defenseless, they're helpless, they're hopeless, they have no chance of survival. And so this mission the great leader's on is a rescue mission to come and pull us out of that pit, 
because we were desperately in need of a Savior, not just an example. And so Jesus is the good shepherd, and his sheep will be saved. And Jesus is a good shepherd, and his sheep will be restored. Continue in verse 6. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. This whole, that, that whole statement is just packed with goodness. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to restore them. Why? Because of my compassion on them. What does Jesus say? He had compassion on them. He loves us. He brings us back and, and lets us be a sheep in his, in his flock again, not because of anything we've done, not because of our goodness, because, man, we have so much to offer. No, it's solely based on his love, his mercy, his compassion. That's why he's doing this. And we didn't turn around and bring him all this goodness in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our wandering, he brings us back because of his compassion. And here's how he restores us. They shall be as though I had not rejected them. I mean, we rejected him. And his response to that was, let's break the staff. The covenant's over. They can have it on their own. They can do their own thing. And so he's rejected us in response to our rebellion. And then he says, I'm going to bring them back and it'll be like I, they, I never rejected them. Why? Because Jesus took the, our place on the cross. Because Jesus took our punishment. God rejected his son on the cross. Poured out the punishment for our sin on his son. And then because of Jesus' perfection, and we put our faith in him, he gives us his righteousness so that God can restore us just as if he never rejected us. Why? Because he rejected Jesus instead. So we're restored. This whole picture of him shepherding us and him leading us is a picture of salvation. And so he's the good shepherd, and his sheep will be strengthened, saved, restored, and they'll be made joyful. Look at verse 7. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior. Their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. There's so much joy here that are coming, that's coming to the people of God. And man, the lies that the world tells us, the lies that the bad leaders tells us, the lies that the enemy tells us all the time is that, hey, if you follow Jesus... All your joy is going to be gone. If you really, really follow Jesus, if you really, really listen to him, he's going to take away all the fun. He's going to take away all the happiness. Just put your head down, humble, lowly. You're just going to, just, heaven will be great, but man, it's going to be rough here. That's what the world tells us all the time. Don't follow Jesus. There's no joy in that. There's no fun. You're going to miss out on all the fun. And here's what he says. Hey, you follow me, you got joy that you can't even imagine. You follow me, there's a peace that passes understanding. There's comfort. There's all these things. It's not easy. It's not problem-free. But there's joy waiting for you on the other side. Trust me in that. He's not removing the joy. He's fulfilling the joy. Abundant life is from him. Everything else is trying to steal and kill and destroy that. And so we look to him, and we're made joyful. His sheep will also be redeemed. Look at verse 8. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. They shall be as many as they were before. He whistles, calls us back, and it's a redemptive whistle. It's redeeming us. Redeem is that picture of us being enslaved to our sin in bondage, no hope, can't get anywhere, can't do anything on our own, and he redeems us. He buys us. He purchases us back. How does he do that? Not with gold, not with silver, not with dollar bills. He does that with his blood. You were bought with a price. The 
the precious blood of Jesus. So you're not your own. So let's honor God with our lives and our bodies. That's what we're talking about. He's redeemed us and set us free so that we can follow him as the great shepherd. And he's brought us back and he's gathered us. Verse 9 and 10, put that picture together that his sheep will be brought back and gathered. Verse 9, though I scattered them among the nations... That was this discipline, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live, and they shall return. I'll bring them home from the land of Egypt, and I will gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead, to Lebanon, till there is no room for them. Remember, Zechariah had the vision, don't measure this city, it's going to be bigger than you can imagine. You can't contain it with walls. There's going to be more and more people from all the other nations are going to come into this. There's going to be so many people. So much of my kingdom is going to be so huge. And here he's reminding them of that again. Like, I'm going to gather them back. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to to do all this work. I'm going to whistle and call them back. And then it's going to be more than you can even count. His people, his sheep will be strengthened. If you're taking notes, And you'll see that strengthens was the first one, and it's also the last one. And I only did that because that's what this passage does. In verse 6, he says, I will strengthen the house of Judah. Stability, security, everything they need. Verse 12, I will make them strong in the Lord, and they will walk in his name. So he strengthens us with security, eternal security, stability as his people, and then he strengthens us on the other side of that to walk in his name, to follow him. Everything we need to live this thing out that he's called us to, to follow him, to serve him, to worship him, to, to, to make much of him, that all comes from his strength, not ours. It comes from the gospel working its way through us in our lives. And so he strengthens us by making us a part of his family, and then he strengthens us and gives us everything we need to follow in faith. This is the life that Jesus is calling us to. This is the life with the good shepherd leading us, submitting to him, following him. When Jesus shows up, this is exactly what he does. This is exactly what he says. He connects these prophecies to who he is and what he's come to do. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He's a hired hand and not a shepherd, does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. The bad shepherd, he's not going to protect the sheep. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. But I am, Jesus says, the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And look at this, and I lay down my life for the sheep. There's only one place to find protection, safety. And I have other sheep. They're not even of this fold yet. I'm going to bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. All the way down to verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. And they follow me. You want to know what to do with this whole thing that I've been doing up here? That's it. Hear his voice and follow him. It's a fight because all the other voices are trying to drown it out all the time. That's why I come up here every week so I can be reminded of what voice is true. That's why I open this every day. I want this to speak. I got to fight for that. Every voice is telling me to follow this and follow that and something else is over here. My sheep, they hear my voice, and they follow me. There's also one other thing I think we can do with this. 
I think it gives us an opportunity to look to him as the great leader and then lead others the way he led us. Every single one of us has leadership influence over somebody. Maybe it's just a peer, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's in your position. But those disciples, man, is all the different things that we see about them. One thing that they saw very clearly in Jesus was an opportunity for advancement. <laughs> Look at this guy. He's got some power. He can do miracles. Look at all he's doing here. Look at the crowds. We're the inner circle. We're going to be the right-hand man. No, I'm going to be the right-hand man. No, you know, you're not. I am. And all of a sudden it became a fight. Who's going to be the greatest when Jesus comes into his kingdom? I want to be the greatest. You're going to, there's no way you're the greatest. And Jesus walks into that discussion, that argument that they were having, actually, sadly, more than once. And he walks into it, and he doesn't say this. He doesn't say, guys, stop worrying about being great. We're not going to be great. We're going to suffer. Keep your head down. It's going to be horrible. He doesn't say, don't be great. He doesn't get rid of the pursuit of greatness. He says, you want to be great? Then you need a new definition. You need a whole different way of defining and understanding what greatness really looks like because the greatest is going to be the servant. Mark chapter 10, Jesus called them. He said to them, hey, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Pursue greatness. Be a great leader. Just make sure you're leading like Jesus, who is the shepherd king, the servant leader who put us first. And he gives us that new definition here. And then he gives us an example. That's how he lived. That's how he ministered. He, he washed their feet. But he knew that that wasn't even enough. We needed more than just a definition and an example. We needed him to die on the cross to set us free from our selfishness. And so he laid his life down to set us free to follow him. And as we follow him, we get to influence others the way he influenced us, by serving and laying down our lives. Let's be the people that follow him that way. Let's be the sheep that hear his voice and follow him and serve the world around us. Let's pray. God, thank you for the truth of your word, how it challenges us and encourages us. And God, I pray that you would help us to be not just hearers of the word, but you help us to be doers of it. God, help us to fight, to listen to your voice and to follow you as the great shepherd. And help us to lead others by serving, putting others first and laying down our lives. God, help us to do that for your glory and our joy as we follow you. And it's in the name of Jesus, our shepherd king, we pray. Amen.